0: Welcome to the weekend edition of The Daily Stoic. Each weekday, we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, something to help you live up to those four Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. And then here on the weekend, we take a deeper dive into those same topics. We interview Stoic philosophers. We explore at length how these Stoic ideas can be applied to our actual lives and the challenging issues of our time. Here on the weekend, when you have a little bit more space, when things have slowed down, be sure to take some time to think, to go for a walk, to sit with your journal, and most importantly, to prepare for what the week ahead may bring. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday, welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic Podcast. So my ranch here in Texas is right outside Austin, between Austin and Bastrop. My bookstore is here in Bastrop, but between Austin and Bastrop is is where I live. And there is something about 15 miles from my house. It's the Circuit of America's track, was supposed to be the only F1 track in in North America. Now I think it's the only F1 track in in America, but uh, all of which is to say, I am just a few miles away from racing, but I know almost nothing about it. But I always admire excellence in whatever form. Uh, Anyone who is world class at what they do, I want to learn from and I try to learn from. So a few years ago, when Brad Keselowski posted that he had read one of my books on Twitter, I was really excited. We reached out and he and I have gone back and forth a few times And I've become really fascinated in how he thinks about what he does. I don't really understand racing, but I've found whether I'm talking to special forces or I'm talking to people at Google or Microsoft, whether I'm talking to the NBA or the NFL or politicians, like people who are great at what they do have a very distinct and unique way of thinking about their craft, about their profession, about the world. And these people are more similar than they are different. And so I was so excited that Brad agreed uh, to let me talk to him. Uh, I think we had a great conversation. Uh, He's clearly not just uh, a student of his sport, but a student of leadership as a whole. Uh, and, and, And really, it seems like leadership to him is the secret to success on the track it's not necessarily about being the best racer or 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 even having the best car it's about having the best system having the best organization that allows you to win you don't create a dynasty by accident and and Brad's partnership with Penske is clearly a, a dynasty he's raced there for 12 years He's one of only six drivers who have won both uh, championships in the Cup Series and the Xfinity Series. He's won each of NASCAR's three national titles. He is unquestionably one of the best racers to ever race. He won the NASCAR Sprint Cup Series in 2012, the NASCAR Nationwide Series in 2010, the Advanced Auto Parts Clash winner 2018, the 2018 Bojangles Southern 500 winner in 2018, he won the Brickyard 500. 2020 won the Coca-Cola 600. Needless to say, if you know anything about racing, you know that this guy is one of the best. And we had an awesome conversation about excellence, about perseverance, about endurance, about leadership. I think you're really going to like this interview. You can follow Brad on Twitter, at Keselowski, that's K-E-S-E-L-O-W-S-E. K-I, and you can follow him on Facebook at Brad Keselowski. We also talk about his transition. He's now at the height of his career, decided to transition to a, a new racing team. Uh, where he is going to be an owner and uh, have a leadership role there, in addition to being a racer, uh, which which I can only imagine is going to challenge him in so many ways and be uh, another wonderful canvas for him to, uh, as we talk about, reach his maximum potential, which is really, I think, what this interview is all about. So here's my interview with Brad Keselowski. So I, I don't know very much about racing, so I'm going to say this uh, up front, but sometimes I find that uh, you learn more uh, about the things you have no idea about than when, when you have the uh, the pretension of knowledge. As far as racing goes, do you find uh, I, all sports are a mix of physical and mental? Do you find that it taxes more physically or more mental? Like h- how, how do you sort of see it as a as a sport? Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're both, but
1: So I get that question a lot and, um, I love to tell this story and I hope this person doesn't one day want to beat me up for telling this story, but I'm going to, I'm going to share it Yeah, because I respect him. I'm going to qualify this. I I really respect him. It's of this NFL wide receiver, Michael Irving. He, he, you know, the Dallas Cowboys, you're you're a Texas guy, right? Yeah. Maybe not Dallas, but still Texas guy. Yes. Uh, well, Michael Irvin was super bowl wide receiver, amazing talent and I grew up as a kid watching him. And what I remember being so special about Michael specifically was he would run routes in the middle of the field, catch the ball in traffic, get popped. I'm a slam and, and hit the ground, get back up. Let's in a step yeah. and go on to the next play. Really tough guy in my mind, not just tough physically, but tough mentally to be able to, to run a route like that with concentration, catch the ball, know you're going to get hit, know it's going to hurt, and and be okay. Yeah. Um, so I have a tremendous respect for him. So I'm going to tell this story now that I've said that part. So, Michael, if you watch this, know I respect you tremendously. So uh, I saw Michael in Texas. Uh, it's been about 10 years ago. And uh, he wanted to do a ride-along around the racetrack. And I'm like, heck yeah, it's Michael Irvin. This is sure. awesome. I'm gonna take Michael Irvin for a lap in a two-seater race car, which isn't full speed, but it's close to it. Let's say it's like 90%. So I take Michael for a lap around the racetrack. And uh, we did about two laps where he rode on the right side, which is you know, probably like a minute, minute 10 of actual on-track time. And we pulled in and when we pulled in, I could kind of unstrap and look over and I can give him like the thumbs up, you okay? And he gave me like the, I'm not okay look. Like yeah, kind of the woozy. Now he got out and, you know, needed a minute to recover. And uh, once he had recovered, you know, it was pretty obvious to me what happened. Uh, And this is the reoccurring thing to being a race car driver that makes it difficult when you get scared you have the same reaction over and over again. Your heart rate elevates, you get kind of the fight or flight, and more importantly, you hold your breath. And I don't care who you are or how strong you are, that's when the mental side starts to carry over to the physical side. And if you hold your breath for minutes at a time, you lose your energy and you borderline pass out, which is what I could tell happened to Michael. So the two really connect, they play together. And as I've gotten older, this has come more naturally to me, especially as a race car driver, but in, in other areas of my life, I've gotten to a spot, Ryan, where I've kind of able to, you know, quote unquote, turn the fear off like a light switch. Like I'm in the car, look, I know something can happen to me, but you know what? I'm okay with that. You know, I'm, I'm not afraid of getting hurt. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm more afraid of just not performing. And so you you literally turn the fear off. And when you do that, when you can mentally turn those other things off, the physical side gets so much easier. And I tell people all the time that if you have the right mentality, if it's a nice day with respect to not an overly hot day, if your car is handling really well, I am convinced that your average 12-year-old could do my job. Uh, the problem is, those days are very, very seldom. You're, you're almost always fighting something with a car. You're almost always fighting. It's a really hot day. You're almost always fighting. Hey, I'm going 200 mile an hour in a pack of cars. And what was that guy doing? I don't know about him. I'm a little nervous about him. There's some kind of situation I'm not comfortable with. And so, there's all these things that play into it. So, when people ask me about the, the physical and the mental, it's it's really difficult to, to create like a percentage base, like sure. 75% mental, 25% physical. Because honestly, if you can have the right mental mentality and you have these variables under control externally, the physical side is a very low percentage of what I do. It's just the reality is in very few situations, can you control those variables? And you do yeah, the okay. best you can to control what you can control when you can control it.
0: Like I'm like, you take a sport like golf, obviously there's a huge physical component to golf, but what's fascinating about golf is like the harder you try at golf, the Mm -hmm. worse you are at golf. So Mm -hmm. is there an element to what you do? I've got to imagine where it's kind of about getting into a flow state, not thinking about all the things, because probably what Michael Irving was in was a sort of a hyper aware state of a lot of things that you're able to turn the volume down on because you're familiar with them.
1: Yeah. You clear out the noise, turn the volume down is a great way to put it. You, you turn out the noise and you know, that has come over time. I'm not going to tell you, I've never been scared in a race car. Um, yeah, it happens. You know, it had a, a wreck earlier this year that I wasn't in, uh, but the car in front of me, you know, got up in the air and started flipping and, you know, in the moment it didn't scare me, but you know, a few seconds later, I was like, wow, that was really bad. And I was right there. And if he had yeah. come down at this angle, it could have been, you know, lethal. Right. Uh, so there, you do have those moments, where you just try to turn down the noise. That's a great way of putting it.
0: Yeah, that's, and, and, and the physical element for what you do is, is like the physical element of a fighter pilot. Like it's not, they're not making it go fast, but they are being jarred and you're enduring the G forces and the stress and the, the glint of the sunlight. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine for you, the, the physical component is, it's a lot of it's, it's, it's the endurance, the ability, like the pain tolerance.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm basically the computer of the machine. You know, it's man with machine and I'm the computer. There's very few onboard computer systems in our cars, which is intentional, by the way. Uh, Over the years, we've had all kinds of opportunities to integrate technology of that sort. And we've consistently said no, not because there's, and there's, I think there's a lot of this perception, at least in the NASCAR world, at least externally, Ryan, that, oh, those guys just don't know technology, so they don't know. It's the exact opposite. We have tons of technology. But the technology that goes in the cars, as a driver, we fought for over and over again. No, don't put it in there. Because if you put too much technology in the race cars, then the actual accomplishment of driving the car means less and less and less. Uh, because you have less systems to manage.
0: So how, does, how do you I'm, – I'm, cul- I'm curious how one cultivates that sort of endurance. There's that German word, I think I use it in obstacle, splash basically mm-hmm. like ass in the chair, which is like literally what you're doing. I mean, yes. you're, you're like, you have to put your ass in the chair and just stay there for like hours on end. Right. How do you, how do you cultivate that kind of mental toughness? Like what is the training regimen that goes into being able to, because I got to imagine earlier in your career, it was harder or you couldn't do it. And now you can, you can go all day and you can That's go all it.
1: season. To expand on ass on the chair, it's funny you use those terms um in the car and with the team and we're having our debriefs. Uh I they always joke that I'm the highest paid computer in the world. And uh I always tell them I'm not a computer, I'm an asymmetry. You know, <laughs> yeah. literally yeah, you know, it's it's the feedback through my butt and my hands, but that that dictates the direction, not just of the car, but even beyond the car on the racetrack, the direction of the company. And we have almost 500 employees. Uh, that work on my car and my teammates' cars. And I set the direction for, well, all the drivers do, we set the direction for what they work on, on any given day of, hey, we need to be developing in this area. We need to be maintaining in this area, or we need to cut this program because it's no longer important based on other developments. So uh, my asymometer is not just what you see on the track. It's a lot of off track uh, as well. So where that comes from, some of it is undoubtedly natural talent. You have to have a certain level of natural talent. I think a lot of it is self-awareness. Uh, like anything else, uh, that's the approach that you use to basically create a continuous uh, you know, innovation and improvement feedback loop. And, and then I think there's uh, probably a third part of it that is just effectively work ethic uh, and studying. And that comes back into play in the continuous, you know, improvement loop, uh, where, you know, before I walked into this, uh, interview here with you, Ryan, I was studying, studying film, wasn't looking at anything I was doing. I was just studying what everybody else was doing, uh, which is part of it as well.
0: Yeah. I've got to imagine the, the, the mental discipline for what you do is immense. It just, the intense period of focus, uh, that goes, how long, you like, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, there's, you don't get a halftime, you don't get the breaks, you know, just to be locked. Like, like when I sit and I think people think, for instance, that writers write for long periods of time, we actually write like two hours of consecutive writing would be a lot. Right. So I might write just two or three hours a day. That's it. Um, because the mind can't actually concentrate that long. And I was just recording the audio book to my, my next book. And it's funny, like you can record audio for like two hours before you become like a bubbling idiot. Like you <laughs> you, you just lose your ability to, to, to think and to process and to let alone yep. get words out. So I've got to imagine the marathon for you of maintaining focus when there's such, the stakes are so high and such a low margin for error, um, not just as far as winning, but you could cause a crash and get hurt.
1: You know, it's interesting because... And I'm going to play off what you just said there and say, yes, I agree. Uh, but, but Ryan, when I'm driving the race car, I've always felt like, and you hear this term all the time in the zone, right? Yep. And uh, somebody asked me to define what that meant to me at one time. And I told him, I can always tell when I'm really in the zone because after the race, I don't remember the race. Sure. Like, I don't remember it. I'm, I'm, It's like, there's a function in your brain of cognitive ability that is taking, you know, Ram and rather than using that Ram for a recording function, a memory function, you're like, no, I need all the Ram you got. Yeah. And like the, the memory side is gone and it's not recording. And when I get out of a race car, when I'm, I'm feel like I was really in the zone, I don't remember the majority of the race that I literally just participated in. Yeah, couldn't tell you anything. I mean, literally, like, um, and I'll get a question from a reporter. You know, at lap one thirty-five, you made this move, da da da. I'm like, tell me more. Yeah. I, yeah, like, I sure, yeah, go ahead. And and I sometimes I feel bad because I think the reporter or even a team member might think I'm being rude, but I literally don't remember it. Like I, when you're in the zone, I feel like that piece of your brain just goes away, and you're you are just you know clawing for every bit of ram that your brain has to be able to stay focused and
0: everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month show your support for the show that's talkspace.com slash stoic yeah i think yogi Berra said it's impossible to think and hit at the same time uh Mm -hmm. i don't think i don't think and and obviously anyone that drives you know when you're learning to drive you're like i gotta check but as you do it more this becomes second nature and if you actually were conscious of all the things that you were supposed to be doing, you'd probably be a terrible driver. I mean, anyone. So you you have to get to a place where you turn off the mind, but you ironically, you say turn it off, but you're really turning it on because you're like, you're letting it do what it was trained to do and you're not getting in the way.
1: Well, yes, because keep in mind that I I work in a sport where, you know, reaction timing is critical. It's basically everything. And if you're thinking about something related or unrelated, it's like you're stealing from that part of your brain. Yes. And effectively, why you do things like film review uh, is so that your reactions are immediate. Like you recognize things happening uh, really, you know, subconsciously. Uh, before you you recognize them in a conscious state. Now, ultimately, you come back and you recognize them in a conscious state. And ultimately, you also want to find yourself in a spot to where you're you're making conscious recognition of things that you didn't, you know, perhaps come into the event prepared for. Uh, so you want to make space for that, but they're, they're always in contrast tension right. with each other. Um, and it makes, it's, it's one of the challenges of the job. And so- that's why I said earlier that, you know, on a perfect day, The task is not that difficult because on a perfect day, everything went to plan. Right. And so you don't have this tug of war between the reaction time, subconscious part of your brain and the conscious part of your brain saying, oh, I need to pick up on this because later in the race, I'm going to need that.
0: How do you practice what you do? Like I get how a football team practices. I get how a musician practices scales. Like, how do you, how do you actually do? and i get even watching film but do you run scrimmages like how do you practice yeah. what you do
1: well on the physical side i think you've, you're a fairly fit guy and I, I think you know a lot of different practices so you probably have heard of high intensity training of course you know the concept is for your body you do real quick ramp ups slow down a little not a lot ramp back up you know it's just basically keep interval the heart training rate elevated yep basically interval training without you know a large drop yeah, uh, and there's incredible science behind that, right? That that shows time and time again that hey, maybe running marathons is not the healthiest thing for you. You could accomplish uh, the same thing with uh, high intensity training. Yeah, I feel very much the same way with the brain. Uh, that marathons are probably not the healthiest thing for your brain. And, and when I say marathon, I don't mean literal marathon. I mean mental marathons. Sure. Uh and I've had the most success mentally training effectively in in HIT way, high intensity training for the brain, which would be all right, pick a cognitive function and there's all kinds of them, and they're not hard to find, that is really intense, that is in short bursts with very small intervals of rest in between. And that to me has shown the best training.
0: Like what's an example? So wh- wh- how does that work?
1: Um, so Example, there's a lot of brain training games, apps, etc. that you can sure. do that are exactly that and that I've had the most success with that require you to use multiple parts of your brain at the same time, whether it be recognition or whether it be subconscious movements at the same and you you, you want those to be at the same time. At least in my experience, that's what I've had the most success with. And so about- those two pieces of your brain are fighting against each other. Like I need memory for recognition. No, 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 I need or I need RAM for, hey, uh, I, I need to do this repetitive sure. movement uh, that's very reaction time-based.
0: And what about racing itself? Is it in a simulator? Is it on the track? Or is it just like the race is enough and you don't you don't practice the race itself?
1: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can practice the race. Ultimately, most of the simulators to date are, are like 98% uh, accurate at best and winning and losing really falls in that last two. Sure. And so I've, I've really shied away from them quite heavily, uh, because I would build considerably bad habits. Right. I found more success over film review of actual events and over, uh, you know, practice and things of that on the real racetrack.
0: And I've got to imagine, though, just the experience. Like, There's probably nothing that trains like the races nope. themselves.
1: Because a lot of problem with the simulators is you have no fear. Ah. Because, and, and this has always been a huge issue with simulations in the motorsports world, is fear is a huge inhibitor. And uh, it takes, again, a lot of cognitive function away from you. And when you remove that, you find yourself making riskier moves, uh, which aren't realistic. And you find yourself with more bandwidth to operate, which again is not realistic.
0: Have you seen the movie Sully Mm-mm. about about landing the plane on the Hudson? Oh yes, yeah, Sully. Sully. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's I, a language I, gap there. Yeah. So I live yeah, I, in North think Carolina,
1: and my uh, my southernness is coming
0: out. It's called. I think it's called Sully, the Clint Eastwood yes. movie. Um, yep. But but where where they're trying uh, your point about fear is is an interesting one that I wouldn't thought thought of. But but he's saying you know like you knew what the two outcomes would be, or you knew what the outcome was. So you were able to simulate it. But if you don't know that the, yes. the tricky part is the not knowing and you're making yep. split second decisions based on limited information. That's, that's the the hard part.
1: I think in the movie, they said that he had 30 seconds roughly to decide to go back to the airport and he would have made it. Yeah. And his argument against that was I needed all 30 of those seconds just to recognize what was going on. Right. So you're back to that same thing. Like his brain was pulling, you know, effectively Ram. Yeah. And there, there wasn't enough to digest all of this within 30 seconds. Like the processing time was longer than the 30 seconds I had to make that decision.
0: Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's fascinating. The, the, the idea that the fear is not there. So the stakes are not high enough is really interesting. Like, and it's probably like a comedian, like, Ostensibly, a comedian could practice in front of the mirror. A comedian could talk on the phone, could do it over Zoom, but you actually need the razor's edge of the audience could turn on you at any moment to, uh, to, <laughs> mm-hmm. to, get, to get the real performance out of yourself. Yeah, you turn those lights on. It's a different world, right? Yes. Yeah, man, that's fascinating. So, so talk to me, obviously, as a physical and a mental sport. Um, and so, uh, and all sports are along this trajectory, but, but racing seems a little different, but so you have, um, you have youth, you know, you're in peak physical condition and then, uh, you're declining, but your cognitive ability and your mastery of the profession, they're, they're intersecting. So how do you see, how do you see yourself on that trajectory? I've got to imagine you're getting older. You've done this a long time, but you're accumulating hours of experience and, uh, uh, mastery of the profession at the same time. So how, how does that, how do you feel in the car?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting, and it's something that I work on and think about almost every day. Um, so there's a lot of studies on race car drivers about when their peak is and sports in general have different peaks, right? Right. Uh, where there's an intersection, just like you said, uh, you know, you look at someone like Tom Bray, that's part of what makes him so impressive. He's way past the precedent. Physical has that,
0: declined, but the other yep, has
1: increased. His mental has continued to increase, right? Uh, but he's been able to keep enough physical prowess to where he's really just latching on to all of his cognitive ability and experience right. uh, and making the most of it, but having the physical skill set to still do it, right? Right. Which is super impressive. Uh, like, wow, amazing, impressive. I think I saw something at the end of next season, assuming he plays next year, he'll be the oldest NFL quarterback to ever start a game. Right, uh, which would be again incredible. Uh, but where I was going with this, Ryan, is you know racing research has some consist- shown consistently that age thirty nine is like peak, okay, peak intersection, right. Uh, and there's there's some really great studies on that. Now there are a few people that broke the mold. Um, so there was this driver, Mark Martin, who competed into his fifties and was still competitive, almost won a championship, uh, and he kind of like right, he's if there's a data set, he's the, an outlier. Yeah. Right. On the, on that side. And then there's people everywhere in between, but generally speaking, 39 is like the peak spot. Now there are race car drivers that have come in at 18, 19 years old and had success. You know, the youngest race winner in the history of sport, I think is somewhere around 20 years old. Uh, but no doubt they have a hard time being successful on a continuous and routine basis. And generally that doesn't seem to happen until your late twenties, early thirties. I think even though statistically there's knowledge that late 30s is your prime, I think most car owners uh look for race car drivers that have a fair amount of experience by their late 20s as being right when you want to latch on.
0: When I think you go to Tom Brady, it's it's his mastery of the game and his and this is a physical thing we don't talk about enough but he's also managed to preserve and protect his body. It, so like the discipline I'm thinking about this for my, my book about how do you, how are you disciplined about your discipline? Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Greg Popovich famously uh, popularized the idea of load management in the NBA, like knowing that if we're going to be the same team that goes deep in the playoffs every year, we got to be able to manage the load on these guys or they're just going to wear out. I think what's part of, to me, part of the reason that Tom Brady is he's tough enough that he's able to get rid of the football before he takes hits right? Which some, some quarterbacks might think that's a lack of toughness, but he's running more of a marathon as opposed to a five-year career sprint. So the ability to, to be like, I'm going to reduce the wear and tear on my body, on my mind, on my team to be able to go the distance that requires a different layer of discipline.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I look at Tom Brady and I've spent a lot of time actually studying him and what makes him successful. And And what actually stands out to me as being so interesting interesting about him is he's known as kind of a dink and dunk quarterback, right? where he'll throw quick short passes and beat you with it, with a three yard pass that ends up being seven or eight. That is super accurate and hard to defend until the defense starts to kind of effectively lay up to guard against it. And then he'll buy time (laughs) in the pocket because of the defense you've called. And then he'll throw over top of you. Right. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting concept that, you know, I, I, think he deserves a lot of respect for where you see other quarterbacks that are just, Hey, I'm going to physically outman you. I'm going to, you know, throw the ball deep. And you know, if that doesn't look right, I'm going to scramble and take a big hit and get up, but my career is going to be short. Right. And I, they're never able to take advantage of the cognitive gains that they should be making with reps because they physically deteriorate too
0: fast. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with Doordash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with Doordash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more, all in one place, delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk, and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We Doordashed everything we needed for Easter, just like a couple weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I DoorDashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10 when you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash. That code daily stoic order using DoorDash today for eligible users only terms apply you look at how many injuries are caused in all different sports by overtraining i forget what the olympic swimmer who who is suffering from overtraining syndrome uh i -hmm. think that's a thing that especially with the pandemic and remote work i think other people are going to have to start realizing is like if you don't have balance and you don't have the discipline to say like i'm calling it a day I'm stopping. You're going to burn out.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, one of the sports that I really love to play, not that I'm good at it, Ryan, but I love to play is tennis. Yeah. I love playing tennis. Uh, There's not a lot of fear in tennis, but that said, there's a lot of hand-eye coordination.
0: Uh, There's some people I'd be afraid to play tennis against.
1: Yes. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) I don't play against those people, Ryan, (laughs) but, but you probably get the point. But I just love playing tennis. Sure. I'm not particularly great at it. I'm not trying to be great at it. I get a great workout. of it. I love the hand-eye coordination. It's perfect for what I do, mm-hmm. but I'll play it, you know, twice a month. And every once in a while back to this one, I'll have this like, Oh, I really love playing tennis. Let's play, you know, every week, you know, for two days a week. And then of course, like I start to feel fatigued, right? I get in the car and my feet are a little bit sore or, uh, you know, you start to, you know, your wrists and knees or elbows, whatever it might be, like you get fatigued, right? All right. So even though this was a great workout physically and mentally it, timeout, it's not feeding the ultimate purpose, which right. is to be the best race car driver I can be. So then you kind of have to walk away from it, which is a total bummer, right? Like, but that takes I'd discipline like to,
2: to quit. Yes.
0: It can take yep. discipline. It takes
1: discipline to recognize what was the end goal here. The end goal was to be the best race car driver possible. And this, if, when it begins to do a disservice rather than a service to it. You have to wipe out any of the the dopamine rush or you know, what do you want to call it? The enjoyment you get out of that exercise and remember the main goal.
0: Have you read the inner game of tennis? No, I haven't. Okay. So one, you have to read it if you like tennis, but I believe it's Tom Brady's favorite book. So really? Yes. Um, And it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. He says, you basically can't think And play tennis at the same time. You have to get to a subconscious level. Uh, It's a fascinating book. I think you Mm -hmm. would really like it.
1: Thank you for the recommendation. I'll I'll put it on my uh, my list now.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about reading because that's how we got connected. You're clearly a big reader. Is that another thing you do as far as training the mind, or is it more training your sort of like what do you what role does reading play in being the best race car driver in the world?
1: The number one reason why I read is to be a better leader. Okay. Hands down. Now there is some things that I read that help me in the car. Most of it is for out of the car. Now that said, I might find some book tomorrow that has all these tricks and tips, but a large part of what my role is as a race car driver is out of the car. And people don't see that. And I can respect that. They don't understand it, but I have a team of people that, kind of riding a roller coaster of emotions. Let me back up a little bit, Ryan in motorsports. You are a hall of famer. If you win one out of every 10 races, like it's one of the lowest averages in all sports, Everybody talks about baseball, 300 hall of famer motorsports, like 100 is hall of famer. It's super difficult to win a race. It's a lot of competition. You're, you're competing against 40 guys every week. It's only one winner. is amazing phenomenal. Okay. That means you have way more bad weeks than good weeks. Even if you're a Hall of Famer, nine out of 10 weeks, you did not win. Yeah. And so you have this team around you of people who are they're going to feed off that energy. And and that energy is always going to be the same of we have got to improve. We've got to improve. What did we learn this week? How are we going to apply the lessons? Right. And it's just really tight, uh, feedback loop because it's weekly. We compete 35, 36 weeks a year. So you have 36 weeks a year of PDCA plan, do check act, plan the next race, do the race, come back and check on it. How did it go? All right, now we got to act on it. These are all the things that went wrong that we have to patch up to be better. Well, basically in that is an acknowledgement that we failed and we didn't meet all of our goals. So mentally, this is really tough on a team, right? You're always failing. Even races you win, you're like, all right, we, we might have done 99.9% of everything right, but we failed here. Sure. we got to fix it. we got to fix it. That might cost us next week, right? So that can be really demoralizing on a team to always have area to improve. And I think uh, you asked me where I read, and I'm, gonna, I'm finally circling yeah. this back to it. One of the things I spend a lot of time on is trying to find ways to effectively lead a team to constantly be addressing its weaknesses without falling apart mentally um, and without taking it the wrong way. How do I convey that message? How do I build systems that naturally convey that message in a positive way? Uh, And so I think that's a lot of the studying and reading that really I dig into and look for.
0: What what have been some of the books that have hit you the most?
1: Uh, there's one I really love right now, and I don't know if you've read it. It's called "Debrief to Win." No,
0: I'm writing this down. So
1: "Debrief to Win" is um, a book wrote by a F-16 uh, fighter pilot, and you know aviation, specifically uh, military aviation, defense aviation, is its own animal altogether. Sure. Uh, but what I love about studying the military is they have the ultimate consequence. Right. It's life for mess death. up and mess up, you die. Yeah. And out of that comes this accountability. Because nobody wants to die. Yeah. Right. If you want to die, you probably don't make it into the role of an F-16 fighter pilot. Like there's right. enough pre-screening in there. So with respect to that, nobody wants to die. And when they get close to dying and they live through it, they come back and they fix it. High level of accountability, right? And that's not just an F-16 fighter pilot anywhere in the military where you're in combat, right? And so they've created all these different systems of, again, like debrief to win really documents of how do we learn from our mistakes, apply them in a format that has, it's very transient, right? Fighter pilots come and they go. Uh, you hope the reason they come and they go is because their time ends, but they're retiring. They're, they're retiring. Yes, but not always. Right. Yeah. And there's hard lessons. What do you do when someone passes away in an accident and you have lost the entire morale of the team, confidence, et cetera. Right. They, they've lived these experiences for you know, sure. almost a hundred years and have really iterated the process of how to work through that. And Debrief to Win is a great illustration of that. Um, the consequences are admittedly slightly higher than motorsports. Sure. But that's good. I want to learn from someone who has a format that's better than me. I, I don't want to play down. I want to play up. Uh, hey, so it's, it's probably one of my favorite books of all time.
0: Have you read, uh, I, I used it as a source in uh, Ego is the Enemy, but given your interest in military uh, jets and then also leadership, have you read Boyd, uh, the fighter pilot who changed the art of war? No, but I'd love to. That okay, sounds so right up my eye. One of the he's one of the great fighter pilots of all time. Uh, he fights in Korea. He was called Forty Second Boyd because he could basically take anyone down in forty seconds. But he then becomes a fighter pilot, uh, a fighter instructor at Nellis. But then he goes into the Pentagon where he becomes sort of a bureaucratic fighter. Mm-hmm. So is jo- How do you get stuff out of a broken, flawed, you know? Uh, complicated slow ass system and he basically he he's the he is the inventor of the F-15 and the F-16. He rams them through wow. bureaucratically so he was this uh uh sort of uh reformer and uh you know sort of whistleblower is a fascinating mm-hmm. person but I think one of the great leadership books of all time that you would really really enjoy
1: I'm glad we're recording. So I can come <laughs> yeah. back and watch this I'll follow up. it.
0: Yes. Do you I'm watch glad. film? Well, now, now I have to ask you, because I can't do it. Can you, do you watch film of your own appearances? Like, oh, all the time. Okay, yes. so you even, you even evaluate yourself that way? Oh, yes, all the time. Wow. It,
1: it's, uh, I think it's critical. Uh, you know, one of the things that makes racing interesting, somebody brought it up to me actually just this morning, in most sports, you have a coach. Sure. There's no coach as a driver. I, think it, I don't know why, but the sport iterated away from it. Maybe it's egos. I don't know. Yeah. Um there are a few people who have like trainers and uh, yeah I should say it. most drivers have trainers. Uh most professional drivers have trainers. But very few coaches. And I think one of the issues or reasons behind that is like if unless you live it as a driver kind of like you don't have a lot of credibility. Yeah. And uh coaching is not really a super glamorous job for those that have raced in the past. So there's there's usually not a lot of successful motorsports coaches. So you're really reliant, uh, most times on your own ability to teach yourself. Interesting. And the best way that I've found to do that is watching film over and over again.
0: I meant, I meant, do you watch like interviews you do to see where you can do, you, do you watch all kinds of things if you do to Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. So media stuff. Yes. Yeah. That wow.
0: Yes. Okay. Oh I can't yeah, do it. It's too uncomfortable.
1: It is. It's super uncomfortable. It's super uncomfortable. So I'll watch it with my wife. And I'll be like, I'll, I consume the majority of my media on my phone Yeah, and I'll like in the middle of it, kind of put my phone to the side and just go into listen only mode to be yeah. less uncomfortable. But there's something in the human brain that hates hearing itself.
0: Yes. When you sa- someone told me this about an audio book that because of like how your head works, you hear your voice differently when it's coming out of your own mouth than when it's recorded.
1: Mm-hmm. It has something to do with the base of your voice that your brain recognizes versus what's recorded.
0: I mean, I, I, to go to this idea of a coach and a team sport, I think people loosely understand that what you do is a team sport, but you know, like a basket basketball is a team sport with four other people who do what you do, which, Mm -hmm. you know, it'd be like, I don't know if a golfer was also responsible for overseeing the manufacturing of their clubs and (laughs) the design of the golf. Like you're, you're basically like the athlete and then the CEO of this organization of people who do. Integral parts, their job is integral to you doing your job, but it's not at all the same as your job when, you know, mechanics and, you know, uh, all that, that must be a a weird kind of leadership where nobody is really on the same page as far as what their, their task Mm -hmm. and the larger task is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, um, I got to that position, Ryan, because it's how I was successful. I've never considered myself to be the most talented race car driver. I've had moments where I'm like, man, that was awesome. I'm really proud of myself. But I've never sat back and said, oh, I'm the most talented race car driver ever. So, through the course of my career, where I started to find success came through being a good race car driver who had great leadership abilities. And that meant being able to iterate, being able to you know, recognize patterns and then effectively play ahead. Um, now, in a perfect system, I wouldn't have to do that. Uh, in a perfect system, there would be all these people around me that did that and, you know, everything clicked and was miraculous, et cetera, et cetera. That's a lot easier said than done because recognizing again that the tools that are limited for the team to work with, with respect to recognition patterns, onboard telemetry effectively, they don't have a lot of tools to analyze and um, they make a lot of great decisions and you can make a lot of great decisions with good info, but when you don't have the complete information, you're bound to make some bad ones too.
0: To your point about racing, when everything is going well, a kid can do it. The problem is, things are rarely going well, not just weather, but people have personal issues and uh, egos come in. Like when you're dealing with a large amount Hmm. of people doing a complicated task, there's an infinite amount of complication. And leadership is about trying to get the most out of the imperfect set of variables that you can at any one moment.
1: You know, you go into, being a leader, those who've never led before, at least this is my experience and the people around me that I've appointed in leadership positions over the years. You go into being a leader thinking it's about making decisions. Don't get me wrong, but you think it's decisions like, oh, this is what we're going to work on today. Once you really become a leader, you learn that it's, it's not. Yes, a lot of times it's that, but it's mostly not that. It's mostly You're managing fires. You know, what am I going to do in this situation? Well, this was completely unforeseen. And I now have to build an action plan around it. And I gave somebody an example just last night of, you know, someone I was interviewing for a leadership position and, you know, they asked me about it, you know, what their roles and responsibilities said, you know, be ready to make, you know, day to day decisions that are what you think they are, but be ready to make day to day decisions that aren't what you think they should be. Sure. Be ready to make a day to day decision of, So-and-so employee direct report is going to be out for the next few weeks. And their reason just doesn't sound right. And I'm going to have to question them on it. It's going to be uncomfortable. And I might get an answer that makes sense, but I probably won't. And then I'm going to be left in an area where I have to make a decision on this guy's future. And when I'm making that decision on this, I shouldn't say guy, man or woman's future, I'm going to go back to a memory that I might have where I spent time with their family. And that's going to cloud my judgment. I'm going to go back to, "Mm, if I make this decision, let's just say I don't make a decision here and I just let this play out. What message am I sending to the rest of the team? Sure. You know, there's consequence to action, but there's consequence to inaction too. And I'm going to have to weigh all these things and make a really tough decision that no matter what I do, someone will have a valid criticism of. You know, did I just fire this guy who is out with, you know, maybe a reason that's borderline legit, but doesn't quite feel right? But if I don't make the move, you know, four of his other, you know, um, you know, contemporaries are going to look at me and say, "Hey, I'm pulling the, my my rope and pulling my weight, and he's not." These are the decisions that leaders have to make that are just incredibly uncomfortable, and that I think most people, when they're not in a leadership position, and strive to be in one, don't think about, they don't recognize as part of the role. Uh, And I I think those are the challenges that are faced that uh, don't get much easier over time. Uh, They they hopefully become a little more automated with precedents and practices that are successful, uh, but are clearly um, maybe underrated.
0: No, making, making hard decisions is a skill, uh, that it's difficult to prepare for. It was actually something I was going to ask you. So I, I was talking to Danica Patrick before I interviewed you. I, I asked her what I should ask you. And she so said, she said, uh, and she said, you're not allowed to bullshit me on this one with like the answer that all athletes give, but you recently okay. are, are, you made or in the process of making the decisions you're going to race for another team, right? Where you're going to yes. be, uh, an owner and that's going to be not an easy, uh, journey, right? What, what Mm -hmm. made you at this point in your career decide to make that switch? What is, what's the, the thing that's motivating you or gets you excited about doing that?
1: Well, recognize right off the bat, it wasn't a singular factor. It was a multitude of factors that quite honestly felt like a calling. You know, when you have one thing that stands out at you for me, it's really easy to kind of push aside it, uh, maybe as a distraction, mm-hmm. but when you have like five or six things come at you, all pulling you in one direction, it's a sign. It, it feels like divine intervention to me, you know, and, and you know, I I'm a Christian and I believe in, in God and I believe that God calls people to do things. It's part of my faith. And, uh, you know, I, I don't pray at night and say, God, you know, Show me the person in the yellow T-shirt at two fifteen p.m. and I'll know you're talking to me, right? Like right. I'm not—I'm not that person, right? It's tempting to be that person, but I'm sure. not that person. But I do think that that God talks to people in different ways, and you know, with this particular um, change in my life, and a quick summary, I've competed for Roger Penske Team Penske for about eleven years now. He's you know this historic motorsports figure who's done so much in motorsports and outside of motorsports, you know, that a lot of people know him, not just domestically here in the United States, but globally for a brand of uh, success and excellence. I could have stayed working for him and ran out my career uh, without a doubt. And it would have been very good. I looked at it and said, all right, I have this other opportunity with John Henry, very famous for his businesses and, owns a Liverpool franchise out in the, the UK, and owns the Boston Red Sox, you know, very successful man. And combined with Jack Roush, a successful motorsports pioneer. Both of them came to me with this unique opportunity and, and on its face, it's like, you know, not that interesting. And then some other things started to come along. Of uh, All right. Uh, NASCAR decided they were going to change some of the rules, change the cars. Oh, okay. That means the opportunity is here to leave a mark with two professionals, but also to do it with a new car and a new challenge that's going to change dynamics. All right. I got so two things that are very good. All right. Then the third piece came up where they said, well, hey, not only will we let you or want you to compete for us as a driver, we'd be interested in you having a role as a leader. Like, oh, so now I have an opportunity to grow as a leader. All right and here's a leadership position that's formalized within the company. Okay, that's exciting. Oh, and by the way, we'll give you, you know, an equity stake. Like, oh, wow. So now we're up to like four things. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like and then um there were some other pieces that happened and I know Danica said I can't bullshit, it, but the timing's not right for me to fully disclose it. There were some other pieces that happened b- behind the scenes with some contract negotiations uh that I was having with Penske at the time and it's was like, you know, I just feel like all these pieces are are God telling me that I need to take this opportunity. And if I don't, um, I really feel like I'm missing out. And, And when I look, people ask me all the time, what drives you? And it's, it's, it's a really simple answer that I think is very complex. But what drives me Ryan is to live up to the potential that I feel like I've been given. So there's a lot of talk in, in this world that we live in today about equality, about equity. The reality is, and, and, and you find this out very quickly when you have kids, that we're all different. Yeah. Right? We, we sure. really are. And with that comes different potentials. I don't have, I was a, when I was a kid, Michael Jordan was in his heyday. I wanted to dunk a basketball so bad. I'm going to tell you. I never got close, I'm <laughs> not even like within a foot of the rim. And I practice in the backyard. I practice on, I'm never gonna get there. That was not the potential given to me from God. Sure. But God did give me a lot of potential to be a leader. God gave me, gave me potential to be a race car driver. And I felt like my situation at hand where I was at Team Penske didn't give me an opportunity to fully recognize that potential. I had the opportunity to to recognize a lot of it, but not like all the way. Sure. What's difficult is I'm making assumptions on what my potential is. Sure. And I'm saying, hey, look, I feel like I was at 80% of my potential. I feel like I owe it to God for this blessing I have to live my life in this day and age to try to find 100% of my potential. And if I take this opportunity, And I fail because it was above my potential, then I know. Like I I know where my line was. And now that line moves, right? As we get older, some of that potential changes. We just talked about it. Your physical potential goes down as you get older, your mental potential goes up. I feel like my mental potential has increased at a rate further than what my physical potential has decreased. Sure. And so that has set this, you know. We're in the middle of the olympics but this has set this bar right this high jump bar yeah that has elevated and put me in a spot where a new opportunity was seemingly reasonable that i should pursue and that was a lot of words soup but rationale wise basically what i said to you is i want to feel like i'm at 100 percent of the potential that god gave me and that i'm striving for that and You know, my spiritual beliefs drive a lot of that uh, because I believe that as part of our calling uh, is to continuously grow as people in all aspects, physically, mentally, spiritually, professionally, personally, you name it, right? You should always be trying to grow. Uh, And I think, you know, the easiest recognition of that is when you have kids and you see them grow. And with this comes this, and it's very common, I think, in Western society, this belief that, all right, I'm gonna go to college. And when I get out of college, that's it. Education's done. Right. Give me a job. And this is a trap that I think so many people fall into. This idea that your education ends the second you leave whatever it is, high school, college, you know, a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, whatever it is. Like you set this bar where you're like, my sure. growth, this is my growth bar. I don't believe that. I believe the growth bar should always be, should be moving. And that that's your, sets a potential line that you should be trying to fulfill with the things you do in life.
0: So in short, you you went towards the challenge. You you went yes, towards- absolutely. Head on,
1: head on. And with the belief that if I didn't, quite frankly, I wouldn't be living up to- I wouldn't be living up to God's word and, you know, his provisions to me.
0: Well, yeah. And I think sometimes it's easy for people to people to associate success with external results, right? It's like, Hey, you won this, you got this, you're paid this, which is all nice. But I think you find that the great athletes, the great writers, the great leaders, they're motivated by what you said, which is, am I? fulfilling my potential or am I stopping short? And yes. sometimes that it, sometimes the decisions you have to make to get to that next level, they're, they're painful and difficult and they require leaving some things behind and they're, they can be poorly understood and they can end in abysmal failure also, but you gotta, you, you can't not do it. I'm
1: worth, i um, uh, you know what I'm willing to accept the risk. The yeah. risk I can't accept is not trying. Yeah. That is what I can't accept. Uh, And I look at that all the time and say, and and, you know, there's, there's action in it too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I get a dopamine rush like anybody else. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to hide from that. I love it. I love what I do. I, and I love competing. I love the opportunity. I love the challenge. Um, you know, we're not in my house. I'm in my shop right now. You can see, I've got a few knickknacks behind me. Oftentimes when people do come to my house, the first thing they see is I don't have any trophies in my house. I keep no trophies in my house. When I first met my wife, she was shocked by that. She's like, well, where's your trophies? Where's your award? Like, no, I don't keep this stuff in my house. And it's super intentional.
0: Where do you keep them?
1: I, I keep all of them in my work area. Okay. And a lot of them, I built a small museum, uh, and it's not open to the public and it is literally just for people to stop bugging me about it. <laughs> because for a long time, I had them all locked in a basement in my work okay. because I'm very anti-trophy, not in the sense that I don't appreciate trophies. No, I, like I think trophies are cool as hell. Yeah. But what they meant to me and what they mean to me is like this, manifestation of there's the bar I hit it stop sure and I hate that feeling like I've grown to almost despise my own trophies in the sense that looking at them creates this feeling of content and I hate that feeling of content
0: I love that that's fascinating so so here's a question. Speaking of trophies and success and, and fulfilling your potential, at, at any time I I have someone who's like truly great at what they do and not just great like I'm a fan, but like objectively world class at what they do. Like I had Manu Ginobili on, I had Dominique Dawes on, uh, I had Malcolm Gladwell on. I like to ask: Is it possible to be the best in the world at what you do and be a well-adjusted person? Right? Like, it, is it possible Ooh. to because in a sense, uh, this is, I've said this before, this is what so impresses me about Manu, so here's a guy with four rings and he doesn't seem like uh, it came at the expense of being a balanced, well-adjusted person, right? And I think sure. that's, can you hear me or did we break up? Yeah, I got it. All right, so you, you get the question. So how, how do you think about that, being... Driven and dominant, and having kids and a spouse and a spiritual life.
1: Well, I think what I hear you saying, first of all, Ryan, is work to life balance. Yeah, that's what I hear you saying. You're like, how do you maintain work to life balance while still trying to be an absolute top of your game? Yes. And the answer is, you you don't. In my mind, you, you fail and you come back and you, you try again. Um, and now. We talk about failure a lot, especially in the sports world with what you see in that arena,
0: in the competition,
1: but very rarely does it get talked about in personal life. You know, about a month ago, my daughter had her first dance recital and, uh, I can't remember what time it was. It was like noon on a Tuesday. Right. And I had a conference call. It was a really important conference call. And it started at like 11 a.m. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this call. I'm going to just put it on my car speaker. And, you know, I'm going to drive to her recital. And, you know, the call should end like 10 minutes before. Like, I got this. I got this. I got this. Sure enough, I got in the car and it was time for the recital. And we were like, D. We need to cover this, this, this. We're right now. I'm in like an important topic. And I just, my ability to process time was lost. Yeah. Sure enough, it got done. I looked down. I'm sitting in the parking lot at my daughter's dance recital. And I get out of my car just as she walks out of the recital. Oh, no. And I'm like, holy cow. And my wife, who was at the recital, she walks out. And like, I get that look. Yeah, yeah. You know. You know that look like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> I messed up big, right? But we don't talk about those, right? Sure. We, like, you know, we don't talk about this this tension between the two. You know, if I failed on the racetrack, I'd be in the news, it'd be in the reports, da-da-da. But you fail personally, like it's in a lot of ways worse, right? Sure. And then my daughter, the, the rest of the night, like dad, why were you just sitting in the parking lot? Why didn't you come in the recital? And you're like, <laughs> like you, you know what I mean? Sure, like, I know geez, exactly could this get any more difficult. So what I'm trying to say is I fail. Yeah, I fail all the time. I fail personally. I fail professionally and I hate it. I don't accept it in the sense of not trying to be better. I accept it in the sense of, I think it comes with trying to be the best at anything that you're going in order to be the best at something. You're going to make sacrifices somewhere else and they're going to hurt.
0: Yeah, well, and it's precisely the skills we were talking about earlier, the ability to lock in, the ability to endure, the ability to be singularly focused, you know, those are precisely the things that work against you in the other part of your life. So you have to develop the ability. We talked about turning things down just as you develop the ability to turn the noise down. You have to be able to turn down your own obsessions so you can actually be on the couch when you're sitting on the couch, you know, mm-hmm. not working.
1: Yes. But, you know, the most powerful word in the entire English dictionary is one of the shortest and simplest. No. Yes. You know, I, I, there's uh, a couple pieces posted on Steve jobs where, you know, he was really adamant about people saying no, especially managers, mm-hmm. the power of no,
0: no to features, right. no to whatever. Yeah.
1: Yep. Don't be afraid to say no. And, uh, it, am I perfect at that? Absolutely not. But it's one of the first things I'll tell people that I work around, like how capable are you saying no? Not just to me, like everybody, right? Like there are times when you need to say no, like if you are wanting to be good at this job, you need to be able to say, you know what, this is not a good fit for me today. And I don't know if this really adds the most value. I'm going to focus on my core competencies. And that I think extends beyond the professional world, but makes its way into the personal world as well.
0: That's a lovely place to end because I, I I asked for an hour and it's been exactly an hour and I won't take any more of your time.
1: Thank you, Ryan. I, I could probably do this for three.
0: Well uh, let's do but this I appreciate it. do you. it in person uh sometime yes. next time you're at the F1 track. It's not far from my ranch here in Texas. Well I'll see you there.
1: Good to know. I'll be there uh I think next spring. All right. Uh, which by the looks of it will be sooner rather than later <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> with with the, all the Delta variants and so forth. But I would love to meet you in person and spend some time with you. Let's put it together.
0: Done. And I'll send you a follow-up with these book recommendations. Please do. Thank all you, right, Ryan. All right, man. Talk soon. Much appreciated. All, all right. Best. This was an honor. Appreciate it. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you could leave a review for the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. The the reviews make a difference. And of course, every nice review from a nice person helps balance out the crazy people who get triggered and angry anytime we say something they disagree with. So if you could rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, that would mean so much to us and it would really help the show. We appreciate it. And I'll see you next episode. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery,
1: this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Consciously. What do most people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa
2: Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February Black History Month. Exactly,
1: exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really
2: talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less...